This is Pet Life Radio. Let's talk pets. Welcome to Aquarium Mania. I'm your host, Dr. Roy Anong, speaking to you from the University of Florida's Tropical Aquaculture Laboratory. Thanks for joining us. Clownfish, the first marine aquarium fish in commercial production, have been a staple of the industry for decades. Soon, the thirst for designer clownfish took hold, and just like with koi, goldfish, and freshwater angelfish, an explosion of varieties has now occurred. My guest today is Matt Peterson, hobbyist for over 33 years and senior editor and associate publisher with Reef Terrain Forest Media, LLC. Matt is intimately involved with Coral and Amazonas magazines, as well as their online presence at reef2rainforest.com. Matt started the Marine Ornamental Fish and Invertebrate Breeders Association, sits on the Marine Breeders Initiative Council, and was 2009 Aquarist of the Year by IMAC West and Masna. Join us as Matt discusses the past, present, and future of clownfish varieties. We'll be right back after these messages. Put on a perfectly possum pet party. Having an awesome birthday or adoption day celebration for your four-legged friend? Or just want a fun excuse to throw a fun party with your friends from the dog park? Deck out your party with Molly and Bandit Pet Party Accessories, party products designed specifically for pets. There are wearables, including adjustable pet party hats, bow ties, and tutus. The photo prop kits include funny glasses and hats. The party supplies and decorations include coordinating table covers, party banners, cake decorations, and treat bowls, cups, and bags. Everything you need to create great memories and Instagram-worthy photos. They're available in two colorful themes, Tropical and Fireman. It's a dog's life. Celebrate it with Molly and Bandit Pet Party at mollyandbanditpetparty.com slash petlife. Let's Talk Pets on PetLifeRadio.com. Welcome back to Aquarium Mania on Pet Life Radio. My guest today is Matt Peterson, Senior Editor and Associate Publisher with Reef to Rainforest Media LLC, who is intimately involved with Coral and Amazonas magazines, as well as their online presence at ReefToRainforest.com. Hey, Matt, thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me back. Well, today we're going to talk about clownfish varieties and genetics, and before we go into that, I want to ask a couple personal info and history type questions. So, we did talk a little bit about this earlier in the angelfish podcast, but can you remind us how you first got interested specifically in the marine aquarium hobby and clownfish in particular? Okay, so I started keeping fish when I was five, when my parents bought my brother and I a 10-gallon aquarium, and when I turned 10... We changed that original aquarium over into a uh, saltwater aquarium. So basically just tore everything out, put in some crushed coral gravel, had an undergravel filter. And uh, I believe the first fish we put in there was a, uh, it was either a cinnamon clownfish or a uh, yellowtail damsel, a yellowtail blue damsel. And um, I don't know exactly specifically what it was that got me into saltwater. It was just something that even at that young age, it was something I wanted to do. As far as clownfish is concerned, I actually kind of attribute that interest to my mother before it was ever really me. My mom always loved, you know, Nemo. And it wasn't Nemo back then, but it was, uh, you know, she would always go on about the classic orange Ocellaris clownfish. And I want to say I was maybe 13 when I had my first larger marine aquarium, a 30 long. And uh, 
pair of Ocelaris was one of the first things that went into that tank. And it was, it was as much for my mother as it was for me. And, uh, I think that pair spawned, but at 13, I, it's hard to say if what I saw was really spawning or not. Looking back, I can't remember if I saw eggs or not, but I remember back in the day, even then that was on my mind is, Hey, I, I've heard people are breeding these. Wouldn't it be cool to breed a clownfish? And, uh, I was 13 at the time. And for a frame of reference, I'm 38 now. So back then, you probably didn't really, you hadn't gotten the full story on the birds and the bees anyway yet, so you were not quite sure, right? Oh, uh, no, no, I had gotten the full story. <laughs> they did that in fifth grade, so. Okay. So how did you become interested in marine fish breeding? Well, I mean, that's, it started back then. It started when I was a kid, just hearing that, hey, you know, I was just getting into freshwater breeding, you know, doing things like mollies and guppies and kind of setting my sights on, well, hey, maybe it would be cool to do something like discus someday. And, uh, you know, it's kind of a pretty bad idea given that I was on a well uh, with liquid rock for water. But breeding fish has just been something that's kind of gone hand in hand with being an aquarist almost since I was, uh, you know, back maybe seven years old. So hearing that it was possible I think was the biggest thing that just uh, kicked me into being interested in it. And it was decades before I actually did it. I've only been breeding marine fish now for maybe nine years. But even back then, it was kind of sitting in the back of my head. This is something that you can do. You can do it as a hobbyist at home. And think about it, breeding a marine fish. I think there's a lot of people who keep freshwater fish who still have no clue that we can even breed marine fish at home, let alone the diversity we can now do too. So, uh, But it started back when I was a kid. It's just been part of me my whole life. Now, you've been really active, as you mentioned, you know, past nine years or, or actually more probably with the, on the marine side. You've done a, a lot of work in breeding as well as won a number of awards. Can you tell us a little bit about the Marine Breeders Initiative? Okay, so the Marine Breeding Initiative or Marine Breeders Initiative was something that kind of started as an outgrowth of just needing breeding communities and needing avenues to, to really just promote the cause, for lack of a better, better term. It was founded by Chad Penny and Tal Sweet of MASM, which is the Marine Life Aquarium Society of Michigan. It is still operated by MASM. And for people who are more into the freshwater side of the hobby and really get into hobbyist organizations, most people are familiar with the Breeders Award Program or a BAP. There's no such thing or there wasn't such a thing back in the day on the Marine Aquarium side of things. So we kind of looked at, well, this is a great opportunity to create a Breeders Award program. And perhaps instead of it just being a one-off where Suburban Aquarius Society has one Breeders Award program and the Green Valley Aquarius Society has their own and the Milwaukee Aquarius Society has another one. We looked at it and said, why can't every Marine Aquarium Club have a Universal Breeders Award program? So at its core, that's actually kind of what the MBI started as. Basically creating a system where people could document their breeding efforts be rewarded for their successes and for achieving milestones, earn points, go and rank, and basically uh, get some recognition for what you're doing. At the same time, by filing all this data into a database that's online, it makes it accessible across the world. So the way I like to explain it now is it's kind of like a sports league. You can play for whatever club you are involved in. You can also associate yourself just with the Marine Breeders Initiative if you don't have a home club. But your points travel with you. It's global. So if you go from one organization to another and you're an, you're an advanced breeder today, you won't go move halfway across the country and start back at the beginning. You'll still be an advanced breeder. And that's how it started. Since that time, one of the biggest things that's kind of grown out of the MBI and 
perhaps even overshadows the success of our reporting is the Marine Breeders Workshop. And that is actually happening next week. Uh, we're having the sixth annual Marine Breeders Workshop in Bloomfield Hills, Michigan on Saturday, the 25th of July. And uh, that is, as far as I know, it's the only gathering of marine ornamental breeders, both fish and invertebrate breeders, within the entire continent. And it happens every year. It might be the only thing like it's in the in the world for a hobbyist. That's a pretty special thing. And it gets a lot of attention. Uh, attendance is growing. And this year, I, to give you a quick rundown, we have someone talking about breeding angelfish and rearing them in pickle jars. And I'm talking pomacanthus angelfish. I'm talking like corans and annularis and that kind of stuff. So we're talking about one of the first successful captive breedings of a wrasse, uh, the first successful captive breeding of an anthias. And then um, we have Andy Ryan is coming in to talk about food culturing and really doing it in a new high intensity way that can really ramp up production in a small setting for a home aquarist. So that's where marine breeding is now. That's how far it's come. And a conference like this is really uh, put together to showcase it, to bring people together, to talk about it. And for me, I'm going, hoping to come back fully just revitalized and energized to do something new, to do something different. And that's actually now, I think, the biggest thing that the NBI does. It's definitely an excellent meeting. I really enjoyed it. I was able to go once and, and really learned a lot from everybody there. So thanks for uh, plugging that in. It's, it's really something people should maybe look into. Well, let's take a short break and we'll continue our discussion with Matt Peterson after these messages from our sponsors. Molly, here's your dinner. <laughs> Zeus, that's not your food. Don't let that happen to your precious cat. Elevate your cat's eating experience with the Cat Tree Tray. The Cat Tree Tray keeps your cat's food off the floor and conveniently located on the cat tree. It's the perfect way to eat. It's a beautiful wrought iron tray that easily attaches to your cat tree and keeps dogs and other critters out of your cat's dish. A must for multi-pet households. There's a 6-inch tray for large bowls and a 4-inch tray for smaller bowls. Purchase your Cat Tree Tray today. Go right now to CatTreeTray.com. That's CatTreeTray.com. C-A-T-T-R-E-E-T-R-A-Y.com. Let's talk pets. Let's talk pets. On Pet Life Radio. Pet Life Radio. PetLifeRadio.com. We're back and continuing our conversation with my guest, Matt Peterson, on clownfish varieties, genetics, and hybrids. So let's talk about the clownfish species now. Do you know how many species of clownfish are currently recognized in the wild and, and roughly where they're found? Well, they're found throughout the Indo-Pacific, all the way from the uh, eastern coast of Africa, all the way on the other side to, oh, geez, I got to think about this. They don't quite make it to the Hawaiian Islands, but they go pretty far east into the Pacific. Depending on who you want to ask, I'm going to say there's about 30 species. And how can you tell these clownfish groups apart? Now, I, I um, can kind of tell some of the major ones, but even like, you know, I know there's some confusion among people with the, the percula and the ocellaris. So can you give us a little primer on how to distinguish these, which will kind of bleed into when we start talking about hybrids a little bit? 
Sure. So basically, all the clownfish uh, are in the genus Amphiprion, except for one species that's currently recognized, um, uh, the maroon clownfish, which is Premnus. That one's rather easily distinguished because it has a spine uh, on the cheek, under the eye. And so that sets that fish apart from all the other clownfish. It's actually very closely related otherwise to the uh, Percula and Ocellaris. Percula and Ocellaris have a long history of being confused. Dorsal ray counts and the coloration of the eye are actually two of the key indicators that are used to help people differentiate when you're just looking at an unknown fish. But in actuality, a big part of what would help identify something uh, as a Percula versus an Ocellaris would simply be knowing where it came from. Because for the most part, their ranges don't overlap. Percula has a much smaller range. So if it came from the Great Barrier Reef or the Solomon Islands or uh, Papua New Guinea or um, West Papua, it's going to be a Percula because there's no Ocellaris there. A lot of these animals you can identify on that biogeographic basis. Um, you don't necessarily have to look at it. And just It doesn't just jump out at you and say, I'm a Percula. But knowing where it came from in conjunction with these other traits makes it really easy to tell the difference. But there's several different groups within that genus. They're grouped together primarily based on morphological characteristics, how they appear. So you have things like the Clarkey complex and all the Clarkey complex fish outwardly kind of look similar, especially when they're juveniles. They're similar in terms of adult size uh, and appearance. And you look at something like the tomato complex there, you're looking at fish that are primarily red, a little more aggressive. And again, they all have a pretty similar body shape and appearance. So Again, for something like a tomato versus a cinnamon clownfish, uh, both fish are red. And one of the easiest ways to tell them apart, the tomato, which is Amphiprion fernatus, has red ventral fins. Whereas a cinnamon clownfish, Amphiprion melanopus, will have black ventral fins. It's one of the small, subtle coloration characteristics that looking at wild fish generally jumps out at you right away to help you differentiate these species. But there's been a lot of confusion in the past. There is, for example, Amphiprion barbari. In that tomato complex and amphiprion barbari first was identified as the australian amphiprion rubrosinctus but it comes from fiji it comes from thousands of miles away from australia so people realized oh it's probably not rubrosinctus and it got put into amphiprion melanopus for a long time but one of the things that sets it apart is that it's all red it doesn't have the black ventral fins that amphiprion melanopus has and it's very lightly colored in general it doesn't have a lot of black on its body either it's pretty much a red fish with a white head stripe. And it wasn't until very recently that it was identified and redescribed as an individual species as Infraprion barbari. So for a long time, we looked at Infraprion melanopus and said, oh, it's they're all red clownfish that have some sort of black on their sides and black ventral fins, except for this one over here in Fiji and Tonga. That's a unique one. That's an individual. That's an aberration. That's something different. Well, it turns out it's a different species. So through the course of history, a lot of these animals have been misidentified. The trade still misidentifies clownfish coming in. It makes it kind of difficult at times for a novice to really know what they're getting. One of the ones that keeps showing up on a wholesale list, especially anything out of the Philippines, is something called a black percula. The black percula out of the Philippines is not amphiprion percula. It's the black saddleback. But for whatever reason, it still gets exported from the Philippines with black percula, which gets complicated because there are percula clownfish that have a lot of black on them. There is also the Darwin Ocellaris, which is solid black as an adult. So the trade names kind of mess things up. I mean, where you're buying your fish, you just aren't always getting what you think you're getting. So you just have to do your homework before buying a, a wild clownfish or any clownfish for that matter. 
Okay, well, definitely, um, it definitely clarifies and I guess demonstrates how complex the clownfish species and groups really are. So to make it even more um, confusing, I guess, hopefully, but clarifying some things, can you explain the difference between a strain, a variety, and a species? Okay, so a species, that's, that's something that I think at this point we're all really struggling with. What is a species? I think it was uh, Dr. Luis Roca who showed me a slide from one of his presentations that basically said there's 38 different ways scientists might consider defining a species. So the classic thing that I grew up with where a species is a group of animals that's distinct from another group of animals that can't inter interbreed and create viable fertile offspring, that classic definition of a species is just out of the window completely. We've known for a long time that's not really true. So these days, I think the way I would try to explain this kind of confusing concept is species, generally speaking, tend to be biogeographically defined. They're homogeneous. They're all the same. And, and that's kind of where I would go, for, for lack of a better term. Within the currently described species, we have a lot of varieties, a lot of geographic variants. And in some cases, I believe those are actually probably worthy of being recognized as species themselves. So it goes back to what I was talking about with Cyprian uh, Barbarae in Fiji. You know, the taxonomy is just a bucket. It's just a way of organizing things. Nature doesn't look at it and say, these are a species, these aren't. Nature just says, we're fish, we try to mate and make more fish. So we're trying to organize and categorize nature into these human buckets we call species. And some people would like to lump a whole bunch together and say, well, they're all the same. Other people are liking to split things apart and say every single one of these little minute details adds up and means something. So in the case of one of my favorite examples right now is the blue striped clownfish, which has blue stripes. It's uh, Amphiprion chrysopterus. And there are definitely at least two distinct groups within that species. But there's possibly as many as five that we could isolate out on a geographic basis that this group of species from these few islands has this set of characteristics which set them apart from this other group within the same species over at these other islands that look subtly different. And at the end of the day, we might have two to five species within what is currently considered one species. So that is kind of what drives my, my interest in the biogeography of clownfishes and the unique geographic variations that occur because regardless of whether that red clownfish from Fiji was called Amphiprion rubrocinctus, Amphiprion melanopus, or currently Amphiprion barbari, it was always the same red clownfish in Fiji. It, it wasn't anything else. It didn't just show up and disappear based on what we call it. So knowing where your fish come from is almost more important than knowing the particular species name it carries at a given moment because you always know that the red clownfish from Fiji is what it is. When it comes to strains, you could kind of look at strains as being a man-made representation of what occurs to create these geographic variants. Basically, the isolation of a subgroup within captivity and breeding within that subgroup to emphasize certain traits or bring certain things out. The best example we have as a strain in uh, captivity, I think I would go between Sustainable Aquatics Fancy Ocellaris and the Onyx Percula. Fancy Ocellaris looks like any other regular Ocellaris clownfish. It's orange with white stripes that have thin black edges, except that Fancy Ocellaris has been bred over successive generations to have very heavy black margins on its fins and on its body. And that basically makes it look more like a naturally occurring wild percula. 
The onyx percula does occur in nature. It's basically, percula seems to be a polymorphic species. It has multiple color variants. They're not geographically tied. You can find percula clownfish that are almost solid black right next to a percula clownfish that's mostly orange. The amount of black in the fish varies. And what's happened over the years is people have line bred, which means breeding each generation into itself and going to the next generation, breeding those offspring together. They've line bred percula to have this solid black flank and we call it an onyx percula. A wild onyx percula doesn't produce quite the same reliable results as a line bred captive bred onyx percula, which has been selected to show its black faster, to get its stripes faster, at a smaller size. So there are definitely well-known strains of onyx percula within the aquarium hobby. And that's how I would kind of try to explain strain to your listeners. Okay, no, that's really helpful. Well, a couple more quick questions. In terms of water quality requirements and and basic husbandry, how would you define specific needs for clownfish? And can you generalize or are are some of the clownfish more finicky than others? Absolutely, some of the clownfish are more finicky than others. One of the biggest things I would point out is that captive bred clownfish are much easier to deal with than wild-caught clownfish. To the point now where we really don't need wild clownfish in the in the trade, except for those species that aren't really being captive produced, and except for the breeders who need wild broodstock to infuse diverse genetics into their breeding programs. There are, of course, the examples of sustainable harvest and the benefits that come with that. But if I step aside from all that and just look at how the fish is going to perform for the hobbyist, there's really no reason, especially for any beginning hobbyist, to buy anything other than a captive bred clownfish. As far as their basic care, I mean, they're, they're relatively speaking, they're one of the easiest fish to take care of. They don't need a lot of space because in nature, they're site attached. They don't leave their anemone very often, or they only wander at times, maybe a yard away from it. Even the most explorative species don't get too far away from their home base. So a clownfish doesn't mind being in captivity in the same way that something like a Sohal Tang, which swims and covers hundreds of yards in a day, might have an issue with being in captivity. Especially since these fish are captive bred, captive life is all they've ever known anyway. So they're very gregarious. They lack some of the shyness that the wild clownfish have. In every respect, I would say, captive bred clownfish. Uh, They need what every saltwater fish needs. They need clean water, but they're pretty tolerant of nitrates. So in a fish-only tank, it's not a big deal to have some nitrates. Regular salinity and temperatures, they're very basic fish to take care of. Okay. And in terms of how many you can keep together, do you have a kind of rule of thumb? We'll talk in the next segment about breeding and, and some of the challenges maybe or interesting things about their reproduction. But, but in general, for a hobbyist, how many can they keep together? Two. That may seem small. Uh, and in a big tank, you know, let's say you've got a 200-gallon reef tank, you might have more fish. But for the most part, by the time a clownfish matures, you're going to have a pair if you're keeping more than one. And once they pair up, yes, they become aggressive, just like any spawning pair of cichlids. They become aggressive. They oftentimes want to push out the other fish, even though in nature that's not what would happen. There are, of course, exceptions to the rule. And primarily, if anyone wants to keep a lot of clownfish or try a clownfish tank, what a lot of people will do is they'll start with a large group of juveniles of the uh, Ocellaris and Procula varieties, and they will place them all in the same tank at the same time. And that seems to work pretty well. Of course, there's exceptions to every rule. I have a trio of Infirpurian Trisynctus that kind of just formed on its own when one jumped the divider. So I have a loner, and then I have 
a female with two males and that's how they like to be every time i try to restore the order it doesn't work but in a general rule in your average size marine tank a pair of clownfish is probably what where you're going to be great well unfortunately we are out of time thanks again for joining us matt please be sure to check out matt's webpage links on aquarium mania as well as the latest coral magazine i encourage all of you to visit my aquarium mania blog on pet life radio also if you have any questions comments or ideas for a show please email me at drroy at PetLifeRadio.com. That's D-R-R-O-Y at PetLifeRadio.com. Until next time, please visit your local aquarium stores and keep your tanks clean and your fish healthy and keep an eye out for Designer Clownfish and Reef to Rainforest Coral Magazine. Let's Talk Pets, every week on demand, only on PetLifeRadio.com.